In this first episode of Perspectives on Psilocybin, the science and mysticism surrounding magic mushrooms, we'll be talking with Dr. Robin Billings. Dr. Billings is a fully licensed clinical psychologist that has been taking patients in his private practice, which is located in Troy, Michigan, for over 34 years. He receives his PhD in clinical psychology from Wayne State University and utilizes cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, and acceptance and commitment therapy in his practice. He accepts adults, children, and adolescents. I found Dr. Billings early in the process of creating this podcast. Uh, when I was in the stage of researching organizations that are involved with psilocybin and psychedelics more generally. Uh, and on one of these organizations' websites, the Michigan Psychedelic Society, uh, they list clinicians in Michigan who specialize in integration therapy. Uh, we'll touch a little bit more on what integration therapy is uh, later in the episode since Dr. Billings can explain it a lot better than me. But one way this has been phrased in the community is integrating the trip into someone's life. So taking those um, images and lessons and insights that you may have had during the psychedelic experience and then bringing them into your everyday life. When I was looking around on the list of integration therapists, uh, I saw that Dr. Billings was actually a, a alumni of Grand Valley State University. And since we had this similarity and because I was pretty happy that I had found this page of integration therapists, I decided to send him an email. Uh, I was relatively doubtful that he would pay any attention to my email um, since I know that therapists can be very busy people. Um, but ha, to my delight, uh, he sent me a Zoom invitation um, for the next day for an initial meeting. The audio you're going to hear in this episode is from a second meeting, which occurred uh, sometime after once that we were a little better acquainted with each other. Uh, but in this episode, we talk about a number of things. Uh, but what I think Dr. Billings does really well is give an accurate recounting of the history of the study and use of magic mushrooms and other psychedelics. We talk about psychedelic use in indigenous cultures like the Mazatec of Mexico, um, how psilocybin first made its way to the West um, out of the Mazatec culture, and the perception of psilocybin and other psychedelics by society over time. We also touch on the early research of the 50s and 60s, along with the underground research that has been going on since the Controlled Substances Act was passed, and also how psilocybin came to be studied scientifically today, despite the numerous barriers in, set in place by the FDA and DEA. So to start off our discussion, I asked Dr. Billings on how he came to be interested in the use of psilocybin and other psychedelics. That's just my upbringing. Uh, having grown up in the 60s under Nixon and the whole repressive legislation, you know, that was happening back then, uh, we're all a little guarded about this stuff. But yeah, basically, I got interested in 1968 when Richard Nixon and the uh, uh, before the formation of the Drug Enforcement Administration were disseminating anti uh, psychedelic propaganda films. 
and everybody across the country in ninth grade and you know high school level were shown these movies. And in these movies, they talked about how LSD was going to cause you to have deformed babies, uh, that it caused permanent brain damage, would make you psychotic, and end up uh, ruining your life and, and the life of society and your family. So they painted this picture of these things as just the most horrible thing that could ever happen to you if you got involved with this. And uh, I was also aware that they were promoting the Vietnam War. And I was seeing my friends who'd been drafted, honored in our high school gymnasium and funerals, basically eulogies, uh, where men in dress uniform were talking over their caskets that had flags on them, closed caskets, of course, because they had been killed in Vietnam. And that created a bit of a contradiction in many of our minds, which is, is anything they're saying true? <laughs> So that raised down. I figured, well, the only way to, to make some judgment about it is find out for myself. Plus, at that age, many of us were anti-authoritarian and anybody over 30 was to be mistrusted. Right. So I went to the local library and began doing research on it and discovered actually a whole body of literature that indicated research had been going on in this field since the early 1950s. You know, after Albert Hoffman made his discovery and then uh, they began researching LSD, it was it was used by psychiatry. And in fact, if you read Stan Groff, uh, his work uh, back in Czechoslovakia, he would get up in the morning as a young psychiatrist and go do 30 insulin comas and administer electroshock therapy before QRE, you know, where people would break bones and so on for experimental illness. And that was the state of the art of psychiatry. And so they began disseminating LSD as an experimental drug. And it was often offered as a way for psychiatrists and residents to experience what it was like to be insane. So they may have more empathy for their patients or better understand what they're going through. Um, and then they also found through those kinds of experiments that actually know it didn't necessarily make you psychotic. It actually could activate the unconscious and be a very useful therapeutic tool. And so Stan Groff is one of the original researchers uh, ended up here in America in 1967 uh, at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, doing LSD psychotherapy. And he's written up much of this work uh, in, in his book, LSD Psychotherapy, Realms of the Human Unconscious, and other books he's published since. But those are really the seminal works. Uh, so... I got interested in the research back as a young man in the 60s, you know, 68, really, and always followed it and became very interested in the state of the research. But it was all shut down with Richard Nixon. Back in the 60s, they were they were really a lot of the hippies were smoking weed. And I can't put you in jail for exercising your First Amendment right to protest, but I can't put you in jail for having a controlled substance. And so Nixon very intentionally had the idea of getting these people off the street and using that as a means and upping the penalties, keep them off the street longer. And they're nonviolent crimes. And so once Nixon made them illegal, did this make research not possible anymore? Was there anyone that was still able to do research legally? And there were, though, chemists who were legitimately pursuing government research. One of them was Dr. David Nichols, and he was at Purdue. And he was looking at the action of these compounds on the neurons and particularly on receptor sites. And it wasn't until we discovered psychedelics that we even understood what receptor sites were. 
all that stuff came out of the original psychedelic drug research. You know, the interest in, well, what is the mechanism for these things? How do they work? What's happening? And as, you know, more attention was put on the subject, we discovered neurotransmitters. And that kind of research really was spawned by the psychedelics. Before that, nobody even had the hypothesis that such things existed. And because the the action of the drug raised the question of the mechanism of action, uh, people put their attention on it. And David Nichols was one of those. Uh, And he was funded by the Drug Enforcement Administration. And he was developing a lot of novel compounds to look at the effects, you know, of uh, these, these drugs on rat brains. Um, He also was inspired by not only Albert Hoffman, um, but by Dr. Um, Sasha Shulgin. And if you know about Shulgin and his work in California, uh, he was a Dow chemist who was also very interested in these things, but his uh, subjects were not rats, but human beings. <laughs> so he had a small research group and all of the stuff that he was doing was 100% legal. He was just developing analogs of these compounds and experimenting with those to see what the effects were. First, he experimented on himself and his wife, and then he would share it with a small group of researchers who would come together and then they would make notes. And they published all of this in his books. Um, if you've read them, Pical and Tikal. So I had heard of Pical and Tikal before, but I guess I wasn't quite aware of their content, which was basically just recipes for these analog psychedelic compounds. And it's surprising to me that they were even able to get it published in the first place, to be honest. Yeah, they're, they're, one, they're actually wonderful documents of uh, the original research. Uh, one, PCAL is phenethylamines I have known and loved. And the other one, tryptamines I have known and loved, abbreviated into P-I-H-K-A-L, which is apparently the name of some uh, archaeological site in Mesoamerica. And then TICAL, T-I-H-K-A-L. And the books consist of two parts. The first part is the narrative of the results of these years of experience and their personal lives and, you know, where they were at and what was happening. And then the last half of the book are the recipes that he developed for making these things. And they're chemical recipes on how to do it. And once he published PCAL, the Drug Enforcement Administration became very angry because none of these compounds were controlled. And eventually, because of that, they instituted a new law called the Analogs Act, which means anything that can get you high is illegal, (laughs) except fresh air and sunshine. So that's okay. Um, But meanwhile, uh, this this research was kind of disseminating in the professional community. Those of us, you know, who knew the work that was being done were very well-informed. And these substances began to be distributed, you know, among the researchers. And so that that's been going on really since the end of or since, you know, the beginning of the drug war, you know, the end of the research era. So from about 1971, when the Controlled Substances Act was put in place, you know, up until, you know, 25 years later, 1995, 1996, um, the only legal research that was going on besides Dave Nichols was Rick Strasser. And Rick was living in New Mexico. He's a psychiatrist and he wrote an article. He wrote a a series of uh, proposals on studying the mechanisms of DMT or dimethyltryptamine in the brain. And he presented it, though, as a physiological research question. Uh, He was far more interested in the phenomenology of it and collected all that data and published it in a book called DMT, the Spira Molecule. 
Um, but ostensibly, when he wrote his grant, he was really studying the physiological effects of the material uh, more than anything else. And they were the, the Drug Enforcement Administration was and the Food and Drug Administration were willing to approve that kind of research. Predictably, though, these analog compounds did end up making it outside of the lab and into the general population. And while most of them were considered safe in the same way that psilocybin is, in that they don't have much abuse or addiction potential, there was at least one compound that was dangerous. Um, but these things also then began to escape, you know, uh, from the hands of the professionals into the population. So back in the 90s, it was one fellow. He's now, um, he's a felon, but he's featured on the MAPS website as quite a guy. His name is um, Hardison, Casey Hardison. And Casey actually trained as a young man with one of the chemists that Shogun trained to make MDMA and learn how to synthesize. And so he ended up back in the early 90s when the drug, inf- uh, when the um, internet came online under Clinton and Gore, uh, he began synthesizing this stuff and it was circulated in the uh, the broader community underground under the name of a company called Issue. And they were actually making MDMA as well as 2CB, 2CT7, 2CTE, 2CT2. You know, they, they were making all these analogs that Shogun had developed, the more interesting ones, and marketing them online. And eventually the DEA caught up with them and they... One of them left the country, went to another country, um, and then they shut them all down here in America and in Canada. And then the Chinese started making them. <laughs> and you know, one of the compounds that they were that they made were called the N bombs. And if you know about the N bombs, there is two CB, which is two five dimethoxy four bromophenethylamine. Two CB is called bromomescaline, and uh, they synthesized a version uh, that was active at the microgram level. And so they were putting, you know, uh, drops of this on blotter paper and distributing it. Now, the range of effectiveness of this compound is very narrow. So if you take 700 micrograms, you'll have a profound LSD-like experience. If you double the dose and take two tabs, you die because it is so potent of a 5-HT2A agonist that it actually, uh, you know, activates all the 5-HT2A receptors in your body. You have a seizure, you die. And that happened to a number of people. So there were casualties, you know, that were occurring underground um, and others that, that came up. So that's when it began to kind of disseminate into what I call more of the, you know, the illegal channels, you know, where it's, where it's flat out, you know, illegal. Before it was done under the auspices of trained chemists who had DEA licenses, you know, who were, you know, not operating outside the law. And then once the internet came online and people began to connect and the interest was expressed and the market emerged, there were people ready to fill that market. And including the Chinese, you know, and India, they synthesize some of these in India. And you can still get some of these if you know where to look on the dark web. You know, that whole thing sprung up. Um, but there's always been, of course, the criminal underground, right? The smugglers who bring marijuana up from the, you know, south into America, the cocaine, uh, you know, the opiates, you know, from overseas, from Afghanistan, largely. There's always been that criminal underground, you know, who are who are filling the needs of the American population who are expressing a desire for these substances. And it's a very lucrative business because a lot of people want to get high, <laughs> you know, and they're willing to pay for it. 
Uh, and some of them are, you know, they're, they're, they're law abiding citizens otherwise, you know, who are productive and managing their money. And, and so there's this market. So there's also this whole underground scene and you've got the other underground scene, like after the, um, kind of the hippie thing died out. I don't know if you're familiar with the Rainbow Family Travel Council, the Grateful Dead, uh, the Rainbow Family Travel Council. They, they're a bunch of old hippies and, uh, and they have their own, you know, chemists, you know, who, who provide uh, and sell materials on, on the underground market. Uh, and so if you go to a Grateful Dead concert back in the day, you could find somebody with a bag of mushrooms. They'll sell you mushrooms or who's selling LSD, largely those two. Um, so there's always been that underground circuit has been happening, you know, really going back to Ken Kesey and the pranksters and those folks, the brotherhood of eternal love, you know, that's always been. And then recently, I don't know if you know, the um, uh, Leonard uh, William Picard, who had a, a LSD lab in a missile silo, a nuclear missile silo out west. And he got busted in, in 2000 uh, and he spent the last 20 years in a maximum security cell. They released him on compassionate grounds. He spoke at the Entheo Fest. So if you look him up, you'll find it, that, that speech on YouTube. And you'll also find him on uh, an interview with him. Um, and he was uh, synthesizing pretty much all of the LSD that was distributed underground in America. Yeah, massive quantities. So before creating this podcast, I had known about the underground research, but I didn't know exactly what it was. I knew that it had apparently always been going on, but didn't know quite what it entailed. And I was surprised to hear Dr. Billings talk mainly about the chemistry. And so I asked him if there was any psychological research that was being underground at this time as well. Self-experimentation, yeah. But though I would say in terms of, you know, phenomenologically and therapeutically, uh, that there was work being done that generated data that we really couldn't collect and document in, you know, just descriptive data, uh, you know, a pre-post intervention kind of things. But none of that could really be spoken about openly because it was really outside the boundaries of the law, you know, or not, or not fully legal, you know. And then you expose yourself. Oh, you're saying you're doing this with people, and then that's they they come after you if you make yourself a nuisance. Yeah. So that that whole thing has been going on all along, and that sort of and honestly, if you if you look at any of the researchers other than Roland Griffiths, I think, but out of New York University or Charles Grob, uh, Charles was friends with Alexander Shulgin, part of that probably an extended network of researchers, you know, who are self-experimenting and comparing notes and looking at it. And a lot of people who got interested in this field, you know, had their own experience and said, I would like to make, I'd like this to make. I'd like to make this my career, right? If I could, if I could do work in this area, it would be more satisfying than about anything else I could think of. And so a number of people pursued that route. Um, and, you know, are, are the guys doing the research right now, publishing, you know, but they have their own background. Why else would they be interested in it? Uh, most people who are interested in it had their own experience. And it was meaningful enough to them that they devoted their lives to it. So there are connections between the underground and the above ground academic research that has been going on recently. And honestly, this is to be expected because like Dr. Billings was saying, someone has to have an intrinsic interest in this area that was brought about by something in order to feel that they want to make a career out of it. Next, Dr. Billings talks about how this recent research that's been happening at universities like John Hopkins actually got going after decades of dormancy after Nixon passed the Controlled Substances Act. 
Uh, and it really wasn't until the mid nineties that um, Bob Jesse, who was an Oracle, uh, retired Oracle executive, uh, got interested in spearheading a funding of psilocybin research at John Hopkins University. Uh, there's a there's a head of NIDA was at Wayne State University back in the 90s. His name was Dr. Charles or Bob, we called it Schuster. And Bob Schuster had been instrumental in quelling the research on MDMA. The, the Drug Enforcement Administration made it very clear that if you wanted to research that, you would lose your funding. The only research allowed was to prove how damaging it was. And so there was a whole group of researchers that were giving this stuff ostensibly to rats and monkeys and claiming damage. And it turns out later that they were actually giving them massive doses of methamphetamine, which will cause damage. <laughs> so that whole, that whole body of research was basically ruined because of a mistake in the lab is what happened. Um, there was a movement once MDMA was made available through Sasha's research uh, to use it therapeutically. And it was being done underground for a while. Uh, if you've been to the MAPS website, there's a book about the guy who used to do this kind of uh, psychologist who was doing this research with people, uh, you know, treating people basically illegally underground. Um, I'm going to block on his name. Uh, he kept his work very quiet. Um, but MAPS has since published an account of it. Uh, it'll pop into my head here as we go along, I'm sure. So, so this fellow was actually promoting it as a therapeutic agent. And there were people using it that way, you know, the underground uh, work in California. Um, and then the Drug Enf Enforcement Administration announced that it was a Schedule One drug and all research and all use had to stop at the expense of, you know, massive amounts of time in jail if you get caught. Um, so that was pretty much quelled. And then I think Bob in the 90s, uh, he went to a retreat out west at the Council for Spiritual Practices, where he did a meditation retreat and met Bob Jesse and then became more open-minded about it. And so Bob came to Wayne, Bob came to Wayne and uh, met with me. We were talking about research design for that original study. And I met with uh, Bob Schuster. And at that point, they decided to open it up. So Bob Jesse was the guy who kind of spearheaded the work and they they decided to choose a very well-credentialed researcher in the field, Dr. Rowling Griffiths, uh, who had done a lot of research on substance abuse and, you know, and, and documented uh, uh, that work very well and was a respected researcher. And uh, he agreed he, he would be very interested in doing it. And so that's where the John Hopkins studies began. That was in the 90s that they were formulating formulating those ideas. And they really began to get the, the research off the ground and publishing it by 2000. And that began to create the impression that, oh, maybe these things have therapeutic use. And underground, of course, the experience many people had was they could be very helpful and very therapeutic um, if used intelligently, you know, in the right way. And plus, there were a lot of people who were just experimenting in the underground scene who would report great benefits. Like if you get on the, the website, The Shroomery, You'll often hear, uh, you can read these accounts. Yeah, I used to be, uh, you know, a, a crackhead and I smoked weed and I was, uh, you know, really into alcohol and I had all these problems and then I ate some mushrooms and then I grew them and I'm not doing any of that anymore. <laughs> In fact, I'm productively employed. I'm back to school. I'm, you know, my, my marriage was saved or, you know, you hear those kinds of accounts, you know, of people who are doing this clandestinely, you know, underground.
In 2021, you're starting to hear about these accounts a lot more often and in a lot more places than just shroomery. There's tons of news articles online that detail people's experience and if they had major depression or any other type of mental disorder, how it helped them deal with that and especially things like anxiety. And so a lot of people are on the same page, or at least they are aware of the research now. But I'm wondering if Dr. Billings has seen this in his own clinical practice, people just coming to him and asking uh, his opinion on this and if he thinks it's a good idea. Um, and now it's opening up and it's become the hot topic of the day. You know, it's considered, uh, you know, mainstream to have an interest in it. Uh, I'm even getting calls from mothers who have sons that failed to launch and the mothers have never done any kind of psychedelics, but they've read Michael Pollan's book or saw him on TV. And they're asking me, do you think if I give my son mushrooms, it will help? <laughs> I'm going, well, probably not, you know, unless you have some experience and know what you're doing, you might cause more damage than good. You know, relying on the substance itself as the magic cure is a little naive. But a lot of people have presented it that way in the past, you know, that it was something that would like it be a magical experience and cure you of multiple ails. Uh, I think if it's done intelligently and in the right way with some preparation, it can be helpful. The research shows it can help with increasing openness, you know, to other people's perspectives. Uh, it can help you with uh, depression, uh, end of life anxiety. And they're now doing research to see if it will help with smoking cessation, uh, you know, ending other kinds of uh, destructive habits such as alcohol. There was a lot of research in the 50s with alcoholism. And LSD, and they found that what they called the uh, the high dose, you know, psychedelic therapy would for would actually turn around a significant percentage of people. They never drank again after that experience, which is unheard of in alcoholism. You know, it's, it's like a five percent cure rate. It's very low, and they were getting something like forty five to fifty percent remission, uh, which is very promising. You know, but I think what happened is in the 60s, the psychedelics got tied up with the anti-war movement, the Vietnam War and the youth protest. And so they viewed it as something that would change your mind or make you anti-authoritarian or would, you know, turn you into a threat, you know. So they summarily thought that it, it just had to be eliminated because nothing good was coming out of it. And then you had Tim Leary and, you know, that group at Harvard that they were kind of going off into the, you know, left wing radical anti-war perspective. And uh, they viewed him as sort of like a pied piper, you know, that he was leading the youth astray and so on. And so it all began, you know, it got tangled up in the whole political thing. And so the, the legitimate research stopped, unfortunately. So now it's beginning again. And, uh, but it's, it's being still being presented to some degree as a panacea, right? Which is where I think integration therapy comes in. Um, it, it, in and of itself, having, if, if best, it might elicit a mystical experience. And that can be life-changing because you'll remember that experience. But the old patterns of personality simply reassert themselves when the effect of the drug wears off. And as you enter your daily life again, you're really not a different, you know, in terms of your level of being than you were before the experience. You might be able to talk about it, maybe have some meaningful conversations. Um, but is it going to make a difference in your quality of life? So that's a separate question. 
What Dr. Billings just said really illustrates the point that I was trying to make in the introduction to this podcast. If we're going to go back to the snowy hill sledding analogy, if you start at the same spot on the hill that you were making the grooves in, you're just simply going to fall into those grooves again, fall into the same patterns and habits of behavior. And without therapy and integration therapy more specifically, a lot of people can just return to baseline after these experiences and not have this radical transformation that they were looking for. And my observation has been, depending on the issue, uh, it may or may not be helpful. In some cases, it's destructive. Like if you have a predisposition to schizophrenia, it's ill-advised to experiment with these things. You know, even mushrooms, you know, it can actually worsen the psychosis and make it intractable uh, or even bring it on. And how do you know that that will or won't happen? You don't. Unless you've got family history, you know, you can make some reasoned judgment about it or you look at the person and do an analysis of them and assess their functioning. But there's a certain unpredictable component to it. So it's always a bit of a risk to, you know, to expose people to this. By and large, most people tolerate it fine. But there's a small percentage, you know, that won't. So I think we have to use a little bit of, you know, reasoned judgment about how we apply it. After tripping on magic mushrooms, one very common response that a lot of people report is feeling like if everybody in the world did magic mushrooms, the world would just be a better place. People would get along with each other better, everyone would be friends, and there would be no more war. This is a very, very common thing that people say, especially after their first experience. But as it turns out, This was actually tried in Vietnam, at least to some extent, and it didn't go as well as many people might have thought. The Brotherhood of Eternal Love, who were manufacturers of psychedelics, actually ended up trying this during Vietnam. And these fellows were trained by Owsley. They were smart characters and they figured out how to synthesize it. And they were making uh, tens of millions of doses. And at that time, they were even sending it free to, to, to... Vietnam war, uh, Vietnam soldiers, you know, American soldiers who were fighting the war to Vietnam. They had the naive idea that if they turned enough people on, they would end war. (laughs) So, and it really didn't make any difference. Uh, I had a neighbor who actually was drafted. He was about three years older than I, and he was drafted and went to Vietnam. He became a medic and he re-enlisted and went back, um, I think about four times. And he said he he did it because he found living at that level of intensity was um, attractive. And he was taking a lot of psychedelic drugs over there, including LSD. Uh, So, and he viewed that as sort of the place where, you know, he would be able to live on the edge. Uh, So you can, you can, you'll run into people like that too, you know, who are sort of maybe psychopathic in tendency and they find that it lifts their level of arousal from baseline to where it's exciting enough that, you know, they feel more alive. Uh, And then there are people who are prone to abuse these substances. That might be one class, you know, the other one are borderlines you know, who are unstable and seeking some kind of intensity. A lot of people who advocate for the use of psilocybin and are interested in this area often refer to magic mushrooms or other psychedelics as a tool. And it's usually described as a tool for something abstract, like 
exploring your mind, but here we discussed a little more on what exactly it is a tool for. I, I guess I would say the, you know, their potential, the, the promise that they hold, if you will. And, and this is what you'll find in the John Hopkins summaries of their research too, is that you can occasion a mystical experience at the, you know, the, and that would be, let's call it the fourth state of consciousness, right? So the first one is sleep. The second one is normal daily life, which is composed mostly of habits. I learned how to walk when I was 12 months old. I did not have to learn this morning. You know, I'm in my habit, my life is comprised of habitual patterns of, you know, uh, reacting and moving that we learn. Uh, and then occasionally we enter the third state of consciousness where I become self-aware and I observe myself. I kind of separate from myself. I'm able to even perhaps question if my thoughts are accurate. Mm -hmm. Right. I can begin to separate from the thinking, the automatic associations and observe my own thought process and realize much of it is automatic. Much of it is acquired from impressions I'm taking in from the environment. Much of it is selected to reinforce my existing opinions. And most of them are actually wrong. <laughs> so if you begin to separate from that process, you've already moved to another state of consciousness, right? And occasionally psychedelics can, can, can elicit that, right? You sort of separate a little bit and you begin to see yourself from a different angle and your attention is freed and you're no longer identified with your thoughts, no longer identified with your emotional reactions and not even your body. So it occasions for, you know, a, a, a kind of waking up process, but it's a taste, the actual process requires effort. It doesn't just happen automatically. It doesn't have any survival value for the most part. And then the fourth state of consciousness would be mystical when I realize the interconnectedness of all life. You know, what the Buddhists call interbeing, that everything is connected and that life on earth is a single fabric uh, and that what benefits the other species benefits me, you know, that we're, we're all in a mutual, you know, connectivity uh, that we need to be conscious of uh, if we want to understand. And so understanding is born in those mystical experiences. You transcend yourself and you begin to realize, you know, the, the mystery, right? And that's the key element, the awe, the mystery of it all. And those experiences elevate us. You know, we all have them every once in a while. They just may occasionally you know, just happen to us. Maybe on a cruise, you know, when you're watching the ocean or you're out in the night looking at the stars, you know, and contemplating things. We all have a little taste of that. So what the psychedelics do is they kind of amplify it. They make it, you know, very profound. And, and if you remember that, then you develop a taste for wanting to live on a higher level. You become a philosopher, right, at some level. So then you re-enter your ordinary everyday state of consciousness, number two. And the question is, can it go any further? And I think we're designed to do that. We're designed, human beings are designed to grow and transcend ourselves. Uh, we call it, at the emotional level, empathy, right? Compassion um, or conscience. And conscience is sort of a moral compass. It helps me identify the vertical dimension, more or less being, right? More or less awareness. And if I have that awakened, then yeah, maybe something good is going to come of it. But it requires work on myself. It doesn't unfold automatically. To sort of expand upon what Dr. Billings just talked about, um, mindfulness meditation and many groups is seen as the path to enlightenment and psychedelics especially among some mindfulness meditators 
are seen as a sort of shortcut and a way to cheat, to get this mystical experience by basically not putting any work in. And while it is true someone may have a mystical experience or a very intense experience that makes them see life differently, at least for a short while, this does not necessarily turn into these lasting benefits where this connection to the world is embodied in your everyday life like it is in an expert meditator. And what I think Dr. Billings is really getting at here is that it's not cheating or it's not a shortcut because to get this transformation, it is going to require work no matter what. You may have this mystical experience, but it may not result in much in your day-to-day -day life. From this point on, we start to get more into the area of policy and suggestions for regulations that should be in place or could be in place to ensure the safe and responsible use of psilocybin. And this is following the legalization of mushrooms for therapeutic purposes in Oregon and also after Detroit, Ann Arbor, Denver, Colorado, and a few other areas have decriminalized mushrooms. So we're going to touch on the legalization and decriminalization and what implications that has for whether it is put into the medical model or not. Should we want to see this as something that pharmacists are dispensing? Or should it be something that people sort of seek out on their own? So yeah, we're going to make it so that nature is not illegal, <laughs> which is really kind of, it's really a vestige of colonialism. You know, outlawing nature is a vestige of colonialism. You know, we're going to make the sacred plants you use illegal because they don't fit in with our view of reality. And so, you know, they're, 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 you know, if you, if you call the mushrooms, the flesh of God, well, that's sacrilege. The only thing that is the flesh of God is the Eucharist on, you know, Easter Sunday. That's it. Anything else, uh, if you call it that, you're, you're of the devil's party, whether you know it or not. And they would actually kill people in the, the, when they were colonizing who were using these plants and psychedelics are a big threat to those people. Oh, unless you're Rebecca Mercer, big Trump supporter, they're viewing it as an economic, um, Boon, that they're going to create patents on psilocybin so that only they, you know, the pharmaceutical company has the patent and the right to make it and only they are going to distribute it. And, you know, so decriminalizing nature is a wonderful idea because it just it, it, it pokes a pin in the balloon of all those would be opportunists. You know, traditionally, we had religious systems put in place to help us with developing that. You know, that was part of the culture. But those systems uh, are not being very effective anymore. Uh, you know, in fact, we could argue even in America, you know, it's become the fundamentalist system has become kind of a heretical version of Christianity that is elevating political leaders as their, you know, moral guidance. And most politicians are not guided by empathy and altruism. It's more lust for power and self-interest. <laughs> and if you use that as your moral compass, you're lost, right? And that also is a threat of psychedelics because it might help you see that. And then you become non-compliant and not as easily programmed, so to speak. So you can't really view psychedelics outside that context of their what they were used for traditionally in ancient cultures, which is to awaken the longing for being, to be something more, right? To grow uh, and to not just remain satisfied with ordinary life. There's something very unsatisfactory about ordinary life because the end state is we're all dead. 
And once you realize that it's, you know, term, uh, you know, temporary and impermanent, then the question becomes, what am I living for? And we all have different answers for that, but mostly it's about meaning and developing meaning in our lives and what that meaning can consist of. So I think the psychedelics actually, you know, they extend beyond uh, the medical model of being applied to heal sick people. In traditional societies like ancient Greece and the mysteries of Iliusis, they were actually used to awaken the impulse to a higher life, to develop an understanding of your purpose in the world and what that is and, and have a sense of meaning, you know, and connectedness. And we express all that through various spiritual religious traditions, but it's very much an individual matter, uh, at least at the beginning. So, so I think that's sort of the, the, the promise they hold if they're used intelligently. So... Big Pharma is coming in trying to get these patents on psilocybin and other psychedelics. Does Robin Billings think that they are going to win, get these patents, and continue to dominate corporate America? No. No. Uh, uh, they're not smart enough. They know how to make money, but they really don't know what they're doing. Um, you know, the, the plants are part of nature. If you have an interest and you want to pursue it, you can find it. You don't have to get permission from daddy or from the guy with the bucks. Nah, you know, which is why I think people are pushing for the decriminalization of it. You know, just like marijuana, you know, they decided to first use a medical model. We're using this to treat a disease or an illness or, you know, instead of just something to enhance your quality of life and to maybe spark a little bit of introspection or, you know, maybe even occasion and a mystical experience or something, you know, uh, instead we're going to medicalize it because that's the only language they understand. And so we'll, we'll, that's the crack in the wall. So you get it medicalized. And once that's the case, then you say, well, you know, we need to make this a little broader. Why, why, why is it only a person with a particular condition can access this? It may benefit a lot of different conditions. But then again, it's always this notion that we're somehow treating an illness, right? What about just doing them out of curiosity, which is what most people do anyway. So, you know, we're dealing with these kind of authoritarian forces because we live in a society where we have abnormal conditions of existence established. That is where we give permission to people to accrue more than they can possibly need or use and then have dominance or control over those below. We have echelons and we worship the people who made the money and we view those who are poor as less than and it's their own fault. And that's the kind of consciousness, you know, that we're dealing with. And, you know, and when you see it, it's kind of a disease. And how do you cure disease society? If we view, you know, use that model, well, we turn it into a medicine. And that may be one angle, you know, I think it could be a useful angle. We've succeeded, right? So far, using that, that approach. But once that happens, it's going to broaden, you know, and possibly open up to a broader potential. Yeah. I view them as tools. And they can be skillfully applied and they can be mediumly or unskillfully applied. You know, it depends on the person's understanding of what they're doing. So if medicalizing psilocybin, similar to how cannabis was first campaigned for legalization as something that would help patients with things like lower back pain and you can get a medical card and it was that was basically how it was pushed to be legal is saying that it's a medicine. And nowadays, really don't hear that much anymore. But in the case of psilocybin, how are we going to integrate it into society if 
Dr. Billings is looking for more decriminalization to prevent these patents from happening? Um, I, th I think it's, how shall I put it, you know, the, the people who have an interest and who are curious uh, are not going to let an authoritarian system tell them they can or can't do something. They do it anyway. And the people who are more anxious or who are more, you know, in, 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 in comfortable in living the life and the following the standards set by authorities uh, wouldn't even dare cross that line because they don't want to just, you know, disobey the law. They don't want to they don't want to be a criminal. They don't want to be, you know, a source of problems. And then it's also presented as if you do this, then there's probably something wrong with you and uh, you're going to be a threat to yourself, your family and your society. And so, you know, the war on drugs is this whole propaganda stream, uh, which is basically instilling fear in people. And so the people who might benefit from it, people who have cancer, you know, who would benefit from having their anxiety alleviated by a mystical experience, wouldn't have access to it if we didn't make it legal, you know, if we didn't make it uh, something available through a medical model. So now you've got, you know, a trusted authority, somebody who's hopefully vetted and has experience, you know, who can provide you this experience that may be very helpful. And I view that as a good thing. And, and that's one way to approach it. Um, but then there's also just from the perspective of religious and philosophical orientation, uh, what about it is just a, an, an experience to enhance my understanding of myself, I'm already high functioning. You know, I, I live and I work and I have a profession and I, you know, I do everything. I follow the law, pay my taxes. You know, I'm, I'm a law abiding citizen, um, but I'm also curious. And that's the normal instinct, too. And but we're saying that that's not allowed right under the current model. Uh, before the 60s, it was allowed. Um, in fact, if you were interested, if you, had a, if you had a professional degree and you were interested in what LSD did, you could put an order to Sandoz and they'd mail it to you. It wasn't something people feared. It wasn't until all the you know, anti-drug propaganda was disseminated that the fear you know, began to arise. Perhaps one way to look at this issue of how we understand psilocybin as we're integrating it into society is by looking back at the ancient cultures that have used it in the past. One of these is likely to be the Greeks, of which Western culture takes a lot of influence from in the form of science, philosophy, and reasoning. But if you go back to ancient Greece and you read the accounts of the mysteries of Eleusis, where they were served a beverage, kaikion, that clearly was some kind of a psychedelic, um, one of the common themes that would come up among the people recounting that is they lost their fear of death because they had that transcendent mystical experience. And, and that's the same thing that we're finding with the research here now with uh, Charles Grob and the folks out of New York University, that if you give this to people who have terminal cancer, it really eases anxiety about death if they have that mystical experience. And, uh, and, and that can be very liberating. So, but yeah, by itself though, uh, it, it just, it opens the door to, well, how do I live there? You know, or how do I embody this in such a way that it isn't just some temporary state that I experience and remember, but can actually be something I, I access and is able to guide me in my living. One underlying theme that usually exists when we're talking about psilocybin and other psychedelics is that of character development and growth that is seen in these transformative experiences. But how do we conceptualize this growth? We normally think of growth and development as going from a child to a teenager to an adult, but what comes beyond that? 
Is it just the cultivation of wisdom in old age? What can psychedelics help us attain that we don't have now in our development? We have psychological theories, you know, Freud and, you know, Eric Erickson and, you know, theories of development, Piaget and, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but all of these models end right where this would begin, right? Which is you achieve adulthood, you've achieved, you know, the apotheosis of human growth. Uh, there are some researchers that were at Wayne, uh, Gisela Labouvevif, uh, Sander Brent, who were saying, well, what about development past that point? You know, how do we conceptualize that and talk about that? Stan Groff is one. Uh, people view some of his stuff as woo-woo because he gets into some mystical experiences uh, and, and different kinds of healing processes people go through. Uh, transpersonal psychology, I think, is an attempt to map it out. Uh, but they're also viewed as sort of fringy you know, by the American Psychological Association. They're not mainstream science uh, because they incorporate the mystical. Um, though if you read Niels Bohr, or Albert Einstein, they were mystics, <laughs> and nobody questioned their mysticism. Um, I don't know why they would question it for us, right, psychologists, uh, mostly because psychology is a fledgling science and is trying to be more hard like physics or biology, and it's just not going to happen, at least not to be a meaningful psychology. You know, but mostly, mostly it seems focused on making you a better adjusted robot. So staying on this topic of growth and development, just for one more second, Dr. Billings has a great poem that he cites that is sort of descriptive of this experience of transformation and waking up. There's a Rumi poem where he says something about how the caterpillar suddenly realizes that it's on a vine in a garden, <laughs> you know, and it sort of realizes, wait a minute here, you know, there's more going on than eating leaves. <laughs> uh, you know, that, that whole shift in, in consciousness, you know, call it from me to we, you know, from the from the individual to the more, you know, um, transpersonal or above the personal. It is still important that we acknowledge here that therapy is extremely important to have this transformative waking up experience as a result of taking psilocybin or tripping on magic mushrooms. And this is what I talk with Dr. Billings about next is what are we looking for in a therapist? Does it have to be someone with a PhD that's sitting in the room and gives us therapy before and after our session? Or can it be a trusted family member or friend? How trained do they have to be and how much knowledge do they have to have in this area? Can just a friend or a family member be sufficient? Can it be a spiritual leader that does not have a college degree. What exactly are we looking for in a therapist? If the if the family member can be reassuring, you know, but when it comes to separating from your own thoughts and seeing them for the first time, and the family member doesn't know what's happening, and the person is expressing distress about that, and they're saying, I feel like I'm going crazy, a well-intentioned family member is going to say, well, we need to see mental health professional. Um, one of the other arms of that research, by the way, is uh, training ministers in how to guide and navigate sessions so that people who are coming in with a spiritual question, right, a question about their own development, uh, can then access this under guidance of a person, a trusted person. And the advantage of having a trusted person is, you know, the, 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 only, the only real risk for these substances is a panic attack if you have anxiety 
or a depressive episode, right? If you, if you get overwhelmed or prone to depression. So, and those are the two major, you know, psychological states of distress that most of us are treating anyway. So the more common ones. So, you know, if you have a panic attack and you think you're dying, um, you know, then that's a negative experience. It's overwhelming. And I've had, I had one young man come in to see me um, who had just kind of casually taken mushrooms and he, he and his wife smoked pot for, you know, pleasure. Um, his father happened to be a pot grower, <laughs> had become a caregiver now that it was legal. Um, and he was expecting to be a little thing like, you know, um, getting a little buzz on or something, you know, and they actually ate it with a meal, watched some TV and went to bed. And after he went to bed, it hit him and he had a panic attack because he felt like he was losing control of his mind. And what was happening is he was separating from his own thoughts. And for the first time in his life was seeing himself instead of just being in his thoughts, he was now witnessing them. And he thought he was going crazy. He didn't have a category for what that was. He didn't understand it. And not having a category or understanding, not knowing the territory, you're in not you're in new territory and he's he was lost. And then even after it wore off, he still had that residual experience of witnessing his own thoughts and believed that he was going crazy. So that belief caused him major anxiety. He got so anxious that he was throwing up. He couldn't go to work. You know, he was having a hard time functioning in his daily life. And out of desperation, they found me online and came to speak with me. And uh, we began processing, you know, what was happening. And as I began teaching him about self-observation and separating from your thoughts and being able to look at yourself and see yourself with compassion, uh, it resolved. But that took us about six sessions. And then he had an insight. He said, you know, I look at my brother and I was behaving and he said, my brother's in one of being a little macho, you know, kind of presents this image of himself, you know, and, and he says, I was looking, I used to be just like that. And he said, I realized I was just affecting an image that I wasn't really being true to myself. Oh, that's wonderful. Now you're getting insight. So I told him the trip didn't end when the material wore off. In fact, it just began. It's probably going to continue the rest of his life, hopefully for the good, because he had a moment where he woke up and he was able to separate and see himself. And, and that's the that's the potential of growth that, that we have. Uh, and it can be scary, you know, if you don't know what's happening. So that's why sometimes I think of people who are naive or they don't know and they're just curious. It's always good to have somebody who knows the territory, you know, who knows what you're eliciting and what you may be going into and can help you clear up confusion about it. Uh, and to me, that's the more important part, the so-called integration, you know, therapy. We try to make sense out of this experience because it can be overwhelming. Uh, you can have all kinds of things pop up. You know, you discover you've got a mind and it has layers and some layers that you didn't realize you had become activated. And then what do you do with that? Right. How do you know? How do you make sense out of that? And if you're naive and you don't have any notion about what you're doing, uh, I could see how somebody could get caught in a, you know, panic. One person that I know that uh, is connected with me um, through uh Zoom, who lives in the west side of the state, uh, is a military veteran. Um, he has uh, been treating his own PTSD, you know, through psychiatric care and then read about this. And he'd had his own experiences in the past, you know, just experimenting and wondered, well, maybe this would be helpful. Uh, so he learned how to grow his own mushrooms and began taking them. And he contacted me and was on SSRIs and not much was happening. 
And I said, well, if you're on an SSRI, not much is going to happen. You know, so consult with your psychiatrist. But if you if you want to see what this can do, you, you probably need to wean off the SSRI. Uh, and that's not something I would do too quickly, it's at least a couple of months. And then, you know, after you've cleared it, then maybe it will be helpful. And I'm happy to work with you on that. Um, and so he did. He weaned himself off. And then he had some uh, really healing experiences. Uh, he found they were very helpful. And we, we processed some of them. And uh, he then went to his psychiatrist. He and his wife see the same psychiatrist and told him, you know, that he wasn't taking medication anymore because this was had proven helpful. And the psychiatrist said, well, what you're doing is just about the same as giving yourself a lobotomy. You're probably injuring yourself. You're hurting yourself. You should not be doing this. Not the guy to go to for integration therapy because he's going to start telling you about how you're damaging yourself. And uh, he, he kind of connected with me and he said, I don't feel like I've damaged myself. Actually, I'm medication free and I'm doing better than I've been doing in a long time. Uh, what, what is your take on that? I said, well, again, if you talk to somebody who doesn't have a background in it or doesn't understand it or hasn't read the research and who has an opinion, you're just getting his opinion. He may be a professional, but it's not what I would consider an informed professional opinion. I think it's a bias and prejudice you're running into. And as a consumer of these services, you kind of have to decide if you're if you're feeling resonance with what he's saying, then, you know, I would pay attention to it. And if you're not, you may want to find somebody more supportive. By the way, he's your employee. You're paying him for a service. <laughs> it's like a plumber. And if you're not getting good service, do you want to continue paying him? So like if this young man came to me who had had a panic attack and I told him, oh, my God, you know, you've instituted a major anxiety disorder for yourself with this substance. We need to put you on an SSRI uh, because we're going to treat this problem you've just created for yourself. Stupid. Uh, how do you think that would go over? He may have been vulnerable enough to hear that and go on meds and, you know, and then, and then now we're treating an intractable problem that really isn't a problem. Um, and that's the bias that is going to lead you down the road of the medicalizing, you know, what I consider a growth experience. It was disconcerting and alarming because he was unprepared for it, but a growth experience nonetheless. And so I actually told him, actually, what you've done is you've initiated a transformation process. What you were looking for is happening, but it's going to be uncomfortable at first. It's going to be painful. It's going to be challenging, um, but you're going to get through it. And you're going to come out the other end, a stronger person. The last thing that Dr. Billings and I cover in our, in our discussion is the Mazatec of Mexico, which is the indigenous people of Mexico who have been using the flesh of the gods, as they call it, or magic mushrooms and psilocybin, as it's known to us, as a medicine for many, many years. Well, among the indigenous people, like at the Mazatec in central Mexico, south of Mexico City in the Sierra Mazateca, you know, Oaxaca area, uh, they do not view it as a drug. They don't even have that category. They view it as medicine in a traditional native indigenous way, like just like peppermint is medicine for your stomach. If you've got heartburn or, you know, the different kinds of, you know, plants and the environment are helper helpers, right? They do not view it as a drug. They view cocaine as a drug. They view marijuana as a drug, but they don't view the mushroom as a drug. In fact, they call the mushroom uh, El Cuerpo de Cristo, the body of Christ. And they call the chocolate that they drink to enhance its effects, El Sangre de Cristo, the blood of Christ. 
So they turn it into a communion ceremony and they conduct this in front of an altar and they light a candle and they pray and they go into it with intention. They're viewing it as a healing experience. So that's a whole different way of orienting toward it. And we're sort of using that model, you know, and we're stripping it of the religious overlay. But if you look at the John Hopkins University uh, room where they're conducting the sessions, they've set it up very much like the Mazatec Velada ceremony. Uh, they're they're doing it more passively. So you got to put on headphones and you walk through Bill Richards' music, you know, sequence uh, to supposedly match the different stages of the experience. Um, and if you're presenting, if you're approaching it in that kind of what I call passive approach, uh, then yeah, we can maybe occasion the mystical experience. The Mazatec do not do that. Uh, they say you have to be active. You have to meet it actively with intention and that uh, they give you this little chair to sit in <laughs> in front of an altar. You're not lying down and there's no no headphones on. Uh, the curandero may sing, you know, the curandero, the healer may sing, um, you know, different points, but it's, it's not quite the model that the John Hopkins folk have it. Natalia Martinez, who's one of the curanderas, she's in the film uh, Little Saints. Eating Mushroom, Talk to God is a subtitle um, by my friend Oliver Quintanilla. Um, she says the way the John Hopkins people do it is the lazy way of doing it, where, you, where you're passive. She's, she's, she, she's invoking active attention to the process. And it provides a cultural context and they're very warm and supportive. And, you know, that's not, it's not anything scary. You've kind of gone into it with a preparation. You fast, you form an intention, you pray. And they, they understand this, the structure and sequence of the experience. And through, you know, long, long years of indigenous, you know, accumulated wisdom, know how to walk people through it. Oliver's goal, he's actually working on building a um, retreat center his goal is to be able to bring these researchers down to train with the Maztec. so there's some cultural interchange you know uh, we tend to view the the indigenous people as sort of dumb you know they're primitive they're not scientists they don't know what they're doing and you know there's that whole bias that we have uh toward knowledge that isn't acquired in the way that we view as the right way but uh, there's something that they have gained through, I think, millennia. Probably this has been going on for thousands of years with them. But there's a, a body of knowledge that's transmitted orally generation to generation uh, that they have accumulated through long experience that they have kept to themselves. There's no interest in sharing it with the conquerors. What have they done for them? Nothing. <laughs> Why would they share their intimate secrets with these interlopers, right? So they eschew anthropologists. They don't like people coming down and intruding. Um, but there are some people who are willing to open up now because if we approach them with respect and view them as equals, maybe they'll have something with sharing. So that's you know, a whole other line that we haven't really looked at. There is a body of knowledge that is accumulated over long experience among the people who, you know, have used these things for generations um, that we could access if we were respectful and able to let down our own prejudices and biases about what constitutes 
valid knowledge. They're losing their language um, because of the internet. And they got highways up there now, so there's more interchange. And so that's one of the reasons Oliver wants to set up this institute, uh, basically a retreat center and a school, because he wants to help the language, because the language is a culture. And if you lose the language, you lose it, you know? That's how we destroyed Native Americans here in North America. We took the kids away and we, we stopped the transmission of the language. And that was never done in the Sierra Mazateca. The original language is still there, still intact, but it's dying out because of cell phones and the internet. Uh, you know, young people want to, you know, go to the city. They want to, you know, they, they have aspirations, you know, beyond the, the local, you know, view of things. And so much of that knowledge we're losing and uh, he doesn't want it all to be lost. For, for example, they have a whole calendar system that predates Cortez. They have not shared that calendar system. They won't. Why would they? To what end? Uh, well, there's a whole lot of body, there's a whole body of knowledge embedded in that calendar system that looks uh, that shares this indigenous worldview, which we simply destroyed, that is still preserved. You know, we burned the Aztec library. I mean, that library had had uh, you know probably thousands of years of knowledge, and Cortez burned it to the ground. And the the people cried at the time for the loss. It was the loss of their soul. And really the whole loss of their civilization. It was the end. And yet there's pieces of it still alive, you know, down there. Anthropologists have tried to approach it, but they have no interest in it because they're just, they use them as interlopers. Continuation of the colonialism, you know, and because we didn't destroy their language, they've been able to maintain that perspective. So there's a whole body, there's a whole lot of information there that we're going to lose, unfortunately. And if you've ever read Gordon Wasson, the man who quote unquote discovered, though really it was um, it was um, the curator of the Harvard Botanical Museum. Um, I'm gonna block out his name now. Dr. Billings later let me know that his name was Richard Evan Schultz. He was down there in the 1940s, before the 30s, before the war, and uh, and documented uh, the existence of this uh, mushroom tradition. And then the war came, and it was kind of forgotten. And so uh, Wasson found out through Robert Graves, a poet who knew the curator of the Harvard Botanical Museum, that this practice was still going on down in Mexico. And he went down there and he wrote a book called, in 1980, he published it called The Wondrous Mushroom, which documents mycology in Mesoamerica, he calls it. It's a nice tome and it documents the whole history of uh, the, that we knew to date uh, of the tradition. And they let him in because he was respectful. Plus, he was lucky. He asked for a velada with Maria Sabina on the one day of the year that if you ask, you must give them the velada. June 29th is a holiday on the Mazatec calendar and all the calendars of the, of the indigenous cultures down there. So she did it because of that, largely. The burning question I had for Dr. Billings this whole time he was talking about the Mazatec were, can you still go down there and participate in these ceremonies? And not even participate in the ceremonies, but can you just experience Mazatec culture in some way? Or have they completely isolated themselves from the world? Turns out you can. 
Oh yeah, there's a whole market down there now. You, you can you can go down to Huala de Jimenez, and the people locals will come up and ongos, ongos. You know, you want to buy ongos, they'll sell them to you. Uh, they they recommend you're not doing them on the hillside and getting naked and making a fool out of yourself like the hippies did. <laughs> so if you make a nuisance out of yourself, they'll arrest you. <laughs> you know, uh, they actually had to drive the hippies out of there because once Watson published his article in 1957, May 13th in Life Magazine, uh, people began to flock down there. Yeah, I know that's yeah. So yeah. I was wondering if that was still happening or if they had yeah, it's now done more discreetly. And if you if you want to, you can go down there, you know. And there are there are varying degrees of people. Most of the old timers won't do it; they're not interested. Um, Natalia Martinez is, is an exception, and that's because uh, she became friends with Oliver Quintanilla, and Oliver um, is kind of an adopted member of the family. He was the first person to be able to film one of these Verladas. Yeah. And that's, uh, he actually filmed several of them and concatenated it into that one video documentary that he put out. Um, so, yeah, he's he's been uh, accepted. Um, but there's still some people down there who don't like what he did. Right. They, they, don't, they don't want anything to do with him. So, yes, yeah, it's a mixed community. People have their opinions. And, you know, some people don't like outsiders at all. Some are more open. Uh, Natalia said the mushroom is for the whole world, is for everybody. Uh, some of the Mazatec people say, no, our tradition is us. You know, we're not going to share it. Um, something unique and special to our culture. So they, they you have know, different points of view about it all. And, you know, the Spanish conquerors, when they found out that they were calling these sacraments, the, you know, the flesh of God, literally eviscerated them and killed them as heretics and began an inquisition. And so if you even spoke about it, you, you would be killed. And so they kept it secret for 500 years. And that is where we are going to end this episode. I had a fantastic time talking with Dr. Billings, and he has a wealth of knowledge on this topic. And I hope to stay in contact with him in the future because I would love to have more conversations with him. So thank you again, Dr. Billings, for coming on the podcast. And for the rest of you listeners, I will see you in the next episode. We will be talking with Glenn Valdez, who is actually my professor of neuroscience in this last semester I had at Grand Valley. So he brings his own academic view of the studies and his interpretations of them and how he thinks it should be used. And also how psilocybin works in the brain, since he is a psychopharmacologist and works with drugs that act on the brain and alter our perception. So I hope you'll tune in for that one and I will see you then.